I want to thank Superfan Ernie, Superfan Stacy, and Superfan Lee for putting in some guesses for this month. And I want to congratulate Superfan Lee as our winner for February. Lee, you not only get lots of shout outs and love on our social media and our website, and we're going to tell everybody what a great fan you are, but you will be getting a video message from Michael and you will get to choose a film for next year. A lot of people have given us suggestions about what film they should pick. And this is your chance, everybody, to be able to tell us what film we have to watch for next year. You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts. So this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. We are kicking off March with a brand new month. So please look at our social media and look at the four movies that we're going to talk about and make your guesses as many as you want. Yeah, I said it, Ernie, as many as you want. Make those guesses about what you think the theme for March is based on the four movies. There will occasionally be hints in our social media. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Google My Business. Alrighty. Today we are talking in episode 107 about the film Bad Samaritan. It came out in 2018 and we watched it for free on Canopy. And I will put a link to Canopy in the show notes. It's absolutely free. You use your library card and search their films. They even have an app that you can put on smart TVs. You can watch it on your phone. It's absolutely fabulous. So Go libraries and thank you, Canopy. Unpaid promotion for Canopy. Okay, this is a Dean Devlin directed and Brandon Boyce written film starring David Tennant, Robin Sheehan, and Carrie Condon. The DP was David Connell, which Dean grabbed him and also used him in uh, Leverage Redemption, The Librarians, Rush, and the Rush Hour TV series. The synopsis for this film is a pair of burglars stumble upon a woman being held captive in a home they intended to rob. And the tagline is, one bad night, one bad decision can haunt you forever. I think that's fair. (laughs) All right, Mike, kick us off with what is the pickup line for this film? Like several films, this actually has two candidates because the first line of dialogue we hear is off screen. Mm-hmm. which is, what are you doing? Okay, that's decent. Do you remember who said, what are you doing? No, I believe it's in a restaurant, but I don't know. Okay. And then the first line we see delivered is, excuse me, sir, uh, which doesn't fit my, my theory quite as well. Right. Well, the what are you doing, maybe. Yeah, that might. Yeah, sure. The largest film set I've ever been on, I was introduced to the use of fog. Yes, lots of fog. We've all... Had this on a Sunday, spring or summer morning, you walk through your house and you can you can see the shafts of light from Mm -hmm. the windows cutting through, I guess, the dust. (laughs) Yeah, it's I think it's just just the particles that fly around in our homes that you don't realize until. Yeah, not dust in the sense that you're a filthy housekeeper, but just there's stuff in the air constantly. Right. And so we're all used to this. And some filmmakers, cinematographers, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Although, if the filmmaker didn't want him to do it, they wouldn't. They choose to do this sometimes. 
I remember we were watching a movie and John Goodman was on a plane and I believe it was <laughs> even at night or something. So there was no reason to have, you know, like it wasn't like the sunlight was coming through the windows. So now you and I see it everywhere. Everywhere. And yes, this morning it was foggy here in Oregon. It was. But I don't feel like in every home, in every room, in every part of the day, we have fog. In fact, normally homes are warmer than the ambient air temperature and thus have no visible fog. Yes. But this film, they loved their fog machine. Oh, they got their money's worth. And I'll tell you as a crew member standing close to the fog. Stanky. Well, it has a smell and it, you start to feel like you're inhaling it. And it, and then, of course, you want to cough. But if Coughing you're standing, is bad. Yeah, if you're standing near the sound person and you cough, you get a glare. Oh, Buckland probably gives you the death stare. <laughs> yeah. So so I feel bad for the, right. the crew of this film. Now, if somebody is uh, part of the lighting department or the camera department, they can feel free to write in <laughs> and correct me on this. But I thought modern fog machines used some sort of like mineral oil or something. It's not water. No, it's not water. I can't remember. They it, call it, I feel like it said bug juice on it. Could be. Which doesn't make any it, sense. It, to me, has a smell. Yes. Like a, a distinctive scent. I will put in the show notes what the ingredients of fog, uh, a.k.a. Oh, bug juice, are. Awesome. That Just for you. Good enough. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, anything else? That was my take on the cinematography. I mean, it was it was a dark film, like meaning... Underexposed. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so my first note is lots of fog in the interiors, <laughs> yeah. so I noticed that too. Beautiful lighting from Cloudy Days, shot here in Portland, so there were some shots of windows with raindrops on them, which I love. I love that look. Yes, yes. So not necessarily a cinematographic technique as much as a composition technique, but there were a lot of those surprise reveals where, you know, not in this one, but classically like the victim is in the bathroom the medicine cabinet as she closes the mirror door you then see the guy standing behind her with the axe right right that kind of not quite a jump scare but those reveals uh-huh um there's a lot of those i don't know if that works as well maybe as perhaps some filmmakers think it do it feels a little cliched to me mm-hmm. so there's a bit of the <gasps> but then uh, i don't know and this one isn't listed as horror because as as no, it's horror know. thriller. It was thriller, yeah. yeah. Not a horror movie. Yeah. Which I feel like those may well suspense thriller might have those type of scenes. So okay. Yeah. It's one of those things that I just recently learned about this term the Luton bus. Mm. For some director who uh, originated this kind of kind of thing where they're building tension and then it turns out the thing is just a bus and not the killer. And I don't know if this quite qualifies as that, but it did feel to me to be that technique probably worked better in the past. I think audiences have seen it so much now that, and I'm not really a, a suspense or thriller person, so maybe I'm the wrong person to comment, but that was my thought. I will say, even though there was a lot of fog and it was dark and underexposed, it definitely lent to the mood that I think the filmmakers were trying to convey Right. That not only I think everybody, I won't say everybody, a lot of people have the perception that in the Northwest, they're just dreary, ugly, sad days. Mm-hmm. And 
but filmmakers love filming up here because we have this natural like scrim yeah diffuse clouds light. oh yeah <laughs> and so that's why they like to film up here right but it also gives the mood of the a film mood, yeah yeah so if they had you know overexposed by a stop and had a really heavy halo light on david tennant it would have changed the feel of the movie the impact and it very much had a blue hue. Like, I feel like he even wore, like, blue suits. And so it reminds me of, was it Collateral with Jamie Foxx? And it's a Michael Mann film and Tom Cruise. He wanted to film the whole thing at night because he wanted the streetlights to be the, Michael Mann did, the streetlights to be the lighting source. And, and I believe they wore blue and stuff. It kind of reminded me of that. If I recall correctly, and we maybe talked about this on the podcast before, I thought the reason that we associate blue with moonlight is just due to the physiology of how our eyes work, that the cones which capture light work best in lower light at the blue wavelength or something. Mm -hmm. But all that to be said... Blue hue is the color of nighttime lighting mm -hmm. for humans, mm -hmm. right? Even though if you look at it, oh, wait, blue and orange. I had an idea. But those sodium street lamps that were popular for a little while mm -hmm. have that orange, an right. orange hue to them. So yeah. that's interesting if somebody could maybe, because you know Hollywood loves blue and orange. Yes, so. yes. True, true, true. All right. So to give everyone a little bit of a rundown, the writing, we open it up and... We see the valets, basically these two young men. They use their job as a valet because it provides them access. They have someone's car. In the car is usually a garage door opener. We've got the registration, which has their address. Although I believe in that first job, did they use the GPS to say, like, take me home or something? I think they may have used the GPS. Because yeah. I think it told them that it was just like a mile and a half away or something. Yeah. And they've got a lookout back at the restaurant watching the fam. It was a family. It was a young family. I think two kids and a mom and a dad. And so they can be watching and reporting back. Okay, they're on the salad course. You've got a little bit of time. Oh, they just got the check. You better get back here kind of thing. And then... That person can also, you know, I guess if you had to delay or whatever, they can maybe go like, oh, they're out looking for your car. They'll be here in a minute kind of thing. They use that first person, that first family to show the audience the exposition, how the caper works. Right. And I think this was a fantastic idea 25 years ago. But but not now because of all the ring cameras. Yeah, and that, that was the first thing I thought of. And, and we talked about this in the film not it's not ring but there's another vendor that i happen to have personal experience with that has a camera above the garage and when someone appears you get a notification and you can see video and hear audio of this person whether it be your doordash delivering taco bell or your valet robbing your house well not only that when i'm almost sure when i've opened up my maps app which I think would connect with my car, I can see the last place that I use the app to direct me to. Yes. <laughs> and so when I see that from the restaurant it went home at the time we were sitting down to eat, it wouldn't be hard to show Portland police, hey, I think it was somebody. Right. And who would be the first suspect? But the reason I actually do think this was a script that was written 20, 25 years ago and or even more, and they just found and remade was 
that first family has a Doberman Pinscher. And that is a dog from the 80s. Yeah, that was the classic. Um... The classic guard dog in the 80s. In <laughs> and fact, they were ter- In fact, I bet you if we looked up, there are articles about Doberman Tags. owners. No, but owners trying to say like, no, 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 they're really sweet dogs. Because right. they probably got a bad reputation for being. Kind of like pit bulls. Yeah, exactly. But those of our listeners who are of an age will remember the Doberman gang. So they were like the the Hollywood dog for a while. Mm -hmm. And I have not seen a Doberman Pinscher in a movie (laughs) since then. No, now it's probably a pit bull or still I see a German shepherd. Possibly. Yeah. Even though I I think your stereotypical guard dog is probably now something different like Belgian Malinois or something like that. But (laughs) the point just being that felt like, but I bet the producer, Dean Devlin, director, producer, he, he knows the area. I'm sure he's like, well, it would cost me $10 million more to make, to set it in 1985. So now we'll make it contemporary and only that weird guy who watches time codes <laughs> will ever notice. So when we meet David Tennant, which is right after we see the first caper, he is clearly an asshole. Yes. He is not a mustache, mustache twirling villain. He is just an asshole. Yeah. And so is that supposed, because also the scene before we see the caper, the, the, you know, them robbing the family's house, we meet one of the boys and like see him with his girlfriend and see that he wants to go to art school or he at least has an interest in art. So it's kind of trying to me, I feel like the writing was trying to endear us to him or see him as a person outside of a criminal. Oh, we were supposed to be sympathetic toward these valets that are robbing people because there's a line of dialogue where the one kid says, I, I took like, it wasn't lottery tickets, but it was like a, a Taco Bell gift card or something. And the other kid gets mad at him and he says, no, we're only supposed to take things they won't miss. So see, it's Robin Hood, heart of gold, we're supposed to think. Right. So then we meet David Tennant and he's mean to them. So it sets them up as the protagonist, I would think, and yeah. him as the antagonist. Yeah. And I have a bit of a, a, a point here, because if you have a woman chained up in a room in your house at home, the last thing you want to do is call attention to yourself. Right. So this is Hollywood. But he had no way to think that they would go to his house. I mean, oh, I, I've i never heard of such. Bear a, with me. Okay. Right. Sorry. In Hollywood, we pick Matt Damon to be our secret agent, which is patently wrong because even if Matt Damon is an, an, an actor, someone that's that good looking will be remembered, memorable. They actually pick spies for being forgettable. The whole point is you don't even know they were there. Is he supposed to look like an everyman? Exactly. If you have someone kidnapped in, 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 in like a, a garden shed back at the house, you got to keep a low profile, right? So if you... I hate this. If you had a woman locked up in your house. (laughs) In a hypothetical, we don't support doing that. No, not at all. Would he even go out to, oh, I guess he wouldn't want to have DoorDash come to his house. Well, he would probably cook a lot. You just, I'm telling you, low profile. But it is so striking how much of an asshole he is. That's, That's what kind of bumped me. Right. Is you're calling attention to yourself. If the police come three weeks later and say, oh, we think somebody maybe 
has kidnapped a girl, you go, well, you know, the first person I talked to is that David Tennant <laughs> well, guy. Or even if they showed a picture, if you just blend in, put your head down, go right. in and eat and come back. Right. And probably tip them not even a lot, just like a basic, like right. just a mid, mid-range tip. Okay. I want to be clear. I do not have any kidnapped victims in my <laughs> residence. But if I, I went, if I went to a restaurant yeah. and left... 30 seconds after I walked out the door, I don't think anyone there would, would remember me. That's what you want. You, right. If you, if you are that kind of person, you want to just blend in. So the other thing that we found a little troubling is when Sean, I yeah, think. Sean yeah, Sean is the um, uh, Caucasian fellow valet. Right. So when Sean, the valet, goes to David Tennant's home to do the same thing he did with the family's home, he is is rifling through all of his stuff, not wearing gloves. Yes, not wearing gloves. And I just thought, wow. And I think he did it at the family's house also. Yes, they had incredibly poor operational security. So that surprised us. And But once he sees the girl, he turns, or no, he uses a flashlight and he's looking around this room and then he like, spins around and there's this gagged girl tied like chained to a chair Mm -hmm. i can't even imagine because your adrenaline's already pumping because you're doing a bad thing right and then you see this human being looking at you Mm -hmm. with with the the eyes of please let me go oh my god right i mean at that point even the audience like we're all in we're just like what's going to happen next yeah and I wonder if part of the problem was trying to stretch it out to feature length because that that premise of how they robbed the houses and then that setup of you think you're just in there to steal some Taco Bell gift cards and you see someone restrained and there's the bit about he's got a short period of time. So there's the time pressure, which makes for drama, but he doesn't have tools. Right. Right. So, you know, your first thought is, oh, we just cut her loose. Well, but she's chained up. You you can't just, you know, with a pocket knife, cut her loose. So that sets up a tremendous, the stakes, right? So that is interesting. But then as we talked about, and the character does this. So I think this is actually good writing. They didn't always pick the good way. Sometimes they were maybe a little lazy, but in this case, I think they were in that character. It's like, no, I have to tell. Even though I might get in trouble for having to explain how I was in the house, this person is obviously kidnapped and in distress and being tortured. I must say something, which is the right thing to do. So you run around, you're like, what can I do? What can I do? Oh, I don't have tools. I'll just call 911. That's end of story. That, that, that's, I think, how that would play out. So I think it would work well in a shorter form. But of course, they wanted this like, kind of like mastermind, which they're that's basically the character that David Tennant played in the first season of Jessica Jones. So I don't know if he's as an artist trying to distance himself from Doctor Who, but that was, eh. but so he's this like mastermind. And then, so it sets up this, the kind of underdog of these two valets who don't really have much going for him and no resources with this rich guy who's like super intelligent and, and knows everything. So that's what they kind of set up as the ultimate conflict and he does try to tell he does call the cops and he does leave an anonymous tip and the cops show up and so he even drives back to the house so that he can see that the cops intervened and saved the woman 
Mm -hmm. and is frustrated because basically we're to think that David Tennant called a prostitute who doesn't look like more like a call girl, you know, in in movie parlance. She Mm -hmm. is a little bit more sophisticated dress and Mm -hmm. and hair and not like Kit DeLuca and basically pays her to appear like his his evening like date. Right. And there's a point in there where an investigator goes into the house and the investigator doesn't know which room had the kidnapped victim in it, but the audience does. And then we see that it's been completely changed. And that's where I started having problems because um, anybody who's ever dealt with a contractor knows how long that would take to, to redo a room from torture chamber to home office. And the fact that he got it done in like an hour or whatever. Well, and the walls, like... When when the kid was in the room, they just had black plastic sheets up around the walls. So those are easy to tear down and kind of just hide. But the chair looked like some medieval. Right. And it was bolted down. Right. <laughs> so how did he get rid of that? And then to redress it. And then the door was went from like a vault door with, with some key code thing to. Yeah. So it was, it was a little, a little implausible. A, and then there was another point where I made the note that Kale, Tennant's character, had to be able to teleport to be able to go around to all these places and get stuff done. So that's where I felt like they leaned a little too heavy on the he's an evil mastermind. Right. And a little too far away from plausibility. Right. The other thing that kind of confused me is through I saw in the trivia that it said throughout the house, you'll see images and sculptures of horses and there was a scene that actually confused you quite a bit because you knew you had not seen this movie before I had and I totally forgot this scene you thought we were watching the wrong movie because it opened up (laughs) with a boy and a girl and a horse and the horse was obviously a little what's the word like stressed out or you couldn't really distressed yeah yeah the horse was distressed and and very noisy yeah it didn't match the rest of the film tone wise by the end of the film it it kind of made sense did but i read in the trivia it's because kale murdered a horse he was trying to tame it and he accidentally killed it and so that's when he apparently got this fixation on hurting people Mm -hmm. and but i didn't really get that if i hadn't read the trivia exactly if i hadn't read the trivia i wouldn't have pulled that out of the of that that first scene yeah or even after having seen the entire film (laughs) there's a part at the end where kale delivers some really on the nose exposition to his victims which again kind of to me felt a little bit what's what's a nice way to say lazy but um (laughs) It just, it was, it was really, really direct in explaining that and trying to get there. And I think that comes out of, at a certain point, the filmmakers were like, I, I don't think the audience is getting this. We're going to have to give them some, some dialogue to help them out. Yeah. But that that was, it wasn't clear to me that part of it. And I don't know that the motivation for Kale's character was necessary in this kind of a film, right? You don't really need to we delve into. We don't need into, to know why, why he's like a serial killer. Yeah, he's just a bad dude. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like one of those things that pretentious writers put in to impress the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Well, he's actually a tortured soul. (laughs) Yeah. So then it kind of becomes a little bit of a cat and mouse game. A little bit. Because then Kale starts chasing Sean and his friend and trying to pretty much probably kill them. Right. 
they have the scene where he like goes into um Sean's apartment to show that he can kind of like he's smarter than Sean or... because he doesn't do anything. You pointed right. that out. Like Sean's in the shower. He's in the most vulnerable position one can right. be in their home. But wouldn't you at least leave a note or or hock a loogie on his pillowcase or something to just like if you wanted to show I can get you anytime I want, you would leave some some way to freak Sean out or you totally would take his wallet or I don't know something. Because, yes, I agree because that's what we've seen of David Tennant is he's he's almost like psychologically scary yeah. as well as sometimes right. can be physically a, scary. A brilliant manipulator. Yes. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So. And then we get the added tension because the cops, they don't believe Sean. They're just like, we checked his house. It's fine. So I have a, a, a point there. If you are a detective, right? Yeah. You have a lot of experience with people, especially people who are around crime, either committing them or witnessing them. I feel like the detective would have been able to detect that Sean believed it. Now, he might think that Sean was crazy, but he would, I think, immediately know this guy didn't do it. He is reacting like a person who saw this and who is. And then I had a hard time with when David Tennant is Kale, he's like super smart. So he knows he has to move the girl. Right. And he puts her in the car, not in the trunk. Uh, again, some basic rules of kidnapping is you always put the victim in the trunk where they can't be seen. Or maybe look at the out the window at passengers and shake their head that's gagged. Or open the door. <laughs> roll out, a la Steve Carell. Steve Carell a couple character. weeks ago. Yeah. So, um, so that's so we. I have some uh, some points there. I I don't know. I haven't actually been involved in kidnappings, but I was here that the FBI gets involved. Mm-hmm. Right. Presumably, this woman would have been missed by someone. You would think. So, I, I don't know. It just felt to me like, and maybe this is necessary to set up the end, but that the authorities were like, eh, they didn't really care. But then all of a sudden at the end, I thought there was like a big p- police presence when it was useless, when everything was already said and done. So, uh, it was a little, uh, It's rough. Okay. But the exciting thing about this film, one oh, of yeah. the reasons I picked it. Yeah, well. Is at an hour and seven minutes. Mm-hmm. If any of you listeners that have listened to any of our former 106 episodes, right, you will spot our our editor. That's right. Jeff Rymoot himself is in this film. He plays the student who I believe he raises his hand. He doesn't have any lines, but he raises his hand, but then doesn't right. get called on. Right. Yes. So there, there is editor Jeff. Editor Jeff is, is we, we in the him film. A shout out. Yeah. yeah. Super exciting. I remember when he told me he did this. It was very, very fun. And it's not just like a little bit in the background. He, he's, no, he's you know, prominently, prominently featured. featured. Yeah. 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 I think, I think he's, that's an extra. If you just see people milling about in the background, they're that's called back, background. Yeah. So I think he's, you have to have a line to be, a because I looked, I don't think right. he's listed in the cast. Right. I think he's just an extra. About two thirds of the way through the film, Sean's world is just caving in. His girlfriend had nude photos dispersed to her classmates, which is the scene that uh, Jeff is in. His stepfather is accused of stealing equipment and loses his job. His mom is accused of assaulting a child, losing her job. Kale is is basically trying to intimidate him using more mental kind of stuff than 
than kind of thugging him up. And maybe that's right. <laughs> partially because of Tennant's stature being a little slight. <laughs> right. He's not really a thug. He, he really isn't. So I did want to ask, uh, we have talked in the past about famously Chekhov's gun. If there's a gun on the wall in the first act, someone gets shot in the third act. So my question was whether the nude photos of his girlfriend qualify as Chekhov's chichis. Hey, oh, but it does bring up how quickly people fire people for an accusation in this film. So like there is an accusation made against his mother. Boom, she's fired. There's an accusation made against his stepdad. Boom, he's fired. Well, his the stepdad, I mean, he's he obviously didn't do it. And this probably could be figured out. But the stolen equipment was found in his stepdad's truck. So Right. But I, I think at a real job, someone would say, oh, Jim, you stole this equipment. He would go out and say, well, I don't know how I got in the truck bed of my truck, but it's I didn't steal it. I didn't leave the property. That that would have been, I mean, they wouldn't, I don't think they would fire you for that. It is cancel culture now. Well, I suppose maybe <laughs> his Twitter account would be bombarded. But the other thing that I loved is we've just watched, and I will put in the show notes because I don't remember the name of it now. There is an hour long, hour and a half long show on Netflix, something about Hollywood cliches hosted mm-hmm. by Rob Lowe. Oh, yes. And he talked about the bomb scene, how there's the ticking down bomb that does it get to to... one second yes the red led display must always get down to one One second second before before the hero cuts the wire yep and we had one of those in this film oh yeah it was pretty good now my favorite hollywoodism though because i've never seen this particular variant before yes you know how in the cartoons the bad guys would have a bag of money and we knew that because it had the dollar sign painted on it in big letters yeah well in this case in case the, the audience is not familiar with how you dispose of dead bodies, there's a bag with giant letters on it that says lie so that we knew that was what the shallow grave was for. And, and the white powder that. Mm-hmm. But it could be a giant bag of cocaine. So it's right. good that they put. Got to put that on there so right. the audience knows. knows. Yeah. And not tilted to the side where we have an insert of a, a close up. No, no. It is propped up prominently faced toward the camera. I thought that was. It was great. It was great. Yeah. Okay. And then we did have a little bit of an issue with Katie, the the woman, said woman in the medieval looking chair. Oh, yeah. Victim. While Kale is scrapping with Sean, she just stands there. (laughs) She stands there. When, When she had ultimate opportunity to run away. Run away. Yes. So I, I want I want to say we don't like to hate on films, and I'm afraid that some of these criticisms may come across like that. Yeah. I want to be clear that I believe that the filmmakers were aiming for a certain level of deductive work on the audience's part. They they weren't trying to make a Mr. Holmes. No. This was by design. This film was supposed to be kind of a fun thriller that people didn't look at quite as critically as maybe I might. Right. And that's okay. I don't want it to come across like I'm saying that that they, they're bad filmmakers or dumb people. I think they made exactly the kind of film that they're aiming for. Yeah. And that's a film that doesn't require you to have the corkboard with the red yarn to figure out what's going on in the plot. And we are huge Dean Devlin fans. Oh, he's Watched been... all of Leverage. Right. Great for the area. Loved librarians. Oh, yeah. I mean, huge. I... When I came out of film school, I was going to look into working for his production company because 
Right. We were such big fans. So, yes, we say this all out of love. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's why I say, I said earlier, this maybe isn't my my film and maybe not the demo. But I just I just wanted to be clear. We are having a, a bit of a bit of a laugh. Bit of a laugh. But like I said, with the bag of lie, that was probably very specifically done as a shorthand. Like we don't want to have exposition. We don't want people to miss that. Right. So we're going to do this thing. However, some of these things have been done so many times that they become fun. But a little silly. Is it like the Wilhelm scream where it wraps around? Yeah. If we do it enough as an industry, it becomes fun again. Yeah. I have under costumes that near the end, uh, Kale colored his hair and somehow it got thicker and fuller. <laughs> so I don't know if he cut, although I think we see him by hair color, but it looks more obviously he has a wig on. Right. But I think it would be more fun is if in the midst of kidnapping, he made a detour to the salon to get his <laughs> hair not just colored, in but a permanent way. Yeah. A little blown out. Yeah. Yeah. And then I didn't want to list it here. It's very easy for people to find, but I didn't want to make it any easier. The home's address, Kale's at home, the, right. the home that is used for Kale, the address is listed in IMDb, which I just went, wow, if I was the resident of that home, I don't think I would appreciate that. Actually, I think it's the opposite. I think the, the resident of that home was excited <laughs> that their home was listed. They put in it I, in there? Yes. <laughs> they, they like that. It is a beautiful home. Lots of windows. Again, I feel bad giving advice to kidnappers, but I feel like another thing you would not do as a kidnapper <laughs> is have a lot of windows. You would want to keep things kind of closed off. Was there anything about the costumer set uh, that you wanted to talk about? From a costume perspective, we open kind of one of the first shots is uh, Riley is the girlfriend of Sean the valet and she shows up and my, my note was, what's up with her outfit? I didn't know where she was wearing like a white shirt and a black kneeling skirt. So I thought, is she supposed to be a waitress at like an Italian restaurant or something? It was an odd. It just was it like me. a schoolgirl outfit. No, I didn't get the, the schoolgirl okay. aspect. So, and she was in college. She was a peer of Jeff Vreimut. <laughs> yes. Um, how about head trauma? Oh, we've got a lot of that. <laughs> First, Kale Wax of Valet Derek with a baseball bat when he surprises him in Derek's room. Ouch. And beats the crap out of him. Uh, then Kale hits Sean in the head with a shovel repeatedly. This is a Hollywood cliche that good guys can survive multiple strikes to the head with a shovel with uh, maybe a, a cut eyebrow. But other than that, they're just fine. Instead of in real life, they would have brain trauma and not be doing anything. Katie then hits Kale in the head with the same shovel. So a little payback. And then Sean hits Kale in the head with an axe handle. So almost all of the, the physical violence was head related. And nary a bullet that was sprayed around the forest to hit anybody, correct? <laughs> that is correct. I did not detect any bullet wounds. But there were quite a few shots fired. Uh, yeah, but. Okay, let's not talk about that. That's not, that's not important right now. <laughs> All right. Did we get a smoochie from... Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie! With Sean and his... We got two smoochies. We got Sean and Riley a smooch when she comes to his apartment pretending to be a door-to-door -door religious person. And then at 35 minutes in, Kale kisses his alibi, the high-priced hooker. So two smooches that they... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Being a film about two valets, 
driving review much? We do have some vehicular activities in this one. Um, I thought it was an interesting choice to have the Maserati Quattroporte mm-hmm. for his car. Maserati is not a real common make here, so that was an interesting choice. The 70s orange Volkswagen Squareback, oh my gosh, that was so nostalgic for me. I knew a lot of people when I went to high school that had those little Squareback wagons, and they were just as crappy as the other bugs from (laughs) Volkswagen, but they were just different. Interesting choice, the silver Mercedes SL two-door shows that that hooker was very high-priced. Because your standard hooker would be picked up by her pimp in probably like a Camry. So that she was high-end where she could afford that car and drive herself. You have a lot of hooker knowledge. Oh, I watch a lot of Pretty Woman. <laughs> so I, I want to say the, to the filmmakers, don't take out your frustration on the car. There's a point there where Sean isn't getting once out of the police department, so he beats the crap out of his car. That's not fair. Car didn't do it. Like, yell at the cops. I was really impressed and confused by there's a scene where Kale has put a brick through the windshield of Sean's car, but is exactly halfway through. You know what it reminded me of? We had, I don't, I think one of the kids got it in like a contest at school. Yep. And it, it was like a, a vinyl cling mm-hmm. that looked, that had um, markings on it, like um, cracks in a windshield and a half of a football glued to it. And so you would put this vinyl cling on like a car or we put it on their bedroom window and it looked like somebody threw the ball and it was like half in, half out. Yeah. That's what that brick looked like. It did. I thought I saw the other half on the other side, but I was just so surprised. Like, I I don't want to spend the money to get a windshield to try it with, but I'm just like, how would you even do that? But you want the Mythbusters guys to do a special like Hollywood episode? Yeah, Adam Savage, I want to know how you would do that. (laughs) So, I mean, do you like drill a bunch of holes and then sawzall a rectangular hole? Anyway, and then my my last note was there is a a car that Sean borrows from his mom, I believe, is this maroon... Dodge Grand Caravan, and that minivan is the perfect, boring, middle-class representation. <laughs> so so that's, that's, that's my driving reviews. All right. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. I have even more bad news for the filmmakers. Oh. Uh, in United States and Canada, Bad Samaritan was released alongside Tully, starring Charlize Theron, and Overboard with Anna Ferris, and was projected to gross around $2 million from 2007 theaters in its opening weekend. It ended up debuting to 1.8 million. I guess it ended up debuting making 1.8 million, an average of $848 per theater, making Mm. it the eight worst opening for a wide release ever. Oh. Isn't that sad? It is kind of sad. However, it made more theater than my film did so <laughs> there you go well the good news is the budget was 4.3 million i guess this isn't really great news but so domestically it brought in 3.4 and worldwide it made 4.7 so if we don't add in marketing costs it made seven hundred thousand dollars <laughs> right and i must say it's possible they did not spend seven hundred thousand dollars on marketing Yes. Um, now, th- to be fair to this, right, 
this was a Devlin joint, but we weren't involved. So maybe for his next film, if he gets us involved, we could we could top that. Sadly, he has moved to Austin, Texas. Uh, well, I don't know that he ever lived here. He could still make he did. movies here. No, he did. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, his studio is over in Clackamas. Mm. Yeah. IMDb gave it a 6.4 out of 10. Critics also didn't really care for it. It's actually rotten at 53%. Audiences liked it a little bit more at 65%. So I think kind of resonating with our take on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was just under two hours and an hour and 50 minutes. It is rated R and it is, oh, it is listed on IMDb as a crime horror thriller. Yeah, maybe the horror was because she looks a little beat up when we first see her. Right. And then some of the stuff maybe at the end. Like I said, it was a Dean Devlin. It was from the Electric Entertainment, his his company. And I told you we watched it on Canopy. If you want to give it a watch, it's totally free if you have a, a library card. So see what you think. See if your take matches ours. And remember to this kicks off our month of March. What is our theme? Actually, there's going to be probably a lot of clues in the episodes. So if you listen to the episodes this month, that'll probably help you. The number that you can call or text to leave your guess is 971-245-4148. And that number and my email where you can also turn in guesses is in the show notes. And I really, really would love to get a guess from our Australia listeners. So who's going to be the first Australian to guess? Because we have been on their charts for many weeks. So I know they're listening. Right. And I actually have some assets in country. So, uh, you know, it's possible I could offer some sort of localized reward because we would have somebody there to deliver it even. So I, I haven't thought of anything yet, but I'm just saying, Aussies, that is on the table. You're not completely like outside. See, I offer locally here high fives. Yes. And baked goods. Yeah. So uh, maybe I could come up with something local to Australia that, that would be an incentive. All right. I'm throwing you it out there. heard it here, everybody. And, well, they could suggest something even, our Australians. Wow, you better really watch yourself. <laughs> you I, I, would, I said suggest. I didn't say I was going to do it. <laughs> All right, everybody. Never forget. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 